You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. Now, as is our custom, I want to invite you to open the Bible with us. If you don't have a Bible, then there's a Bible, a paperback blue Bible that will be under the seat in either that you're sitting on or, or one that's in front of you. And, and we're going to be in the eighth Psalm. And so in the very middle of that Bible, and I don't want you to be afraid of the table of contents, but in the very middle of that Bible are the book of Psalms. That is the 150 different songs, hymns, uh, poems that are, that are praise to God in light of the human experience, and we'll be in the eighth one. And, and as we've been doing this, uh, I, I want to invite you as you open the Bible, as is kind of our custom, I'll remind you of this, that as we open the Bible, something profound happens. The, the Bible actually begins to open us. And, and, and in that sense, we come fresh, expecting God to speak to us. And, and the way that we believe God does that in the Psalms is, is, as many have said before, is that like the Psalms give us the anatomy or the language, the lingo of the life of faith. They give us a, the way to speak about every single human experience. And while the culture around us might tell us that we ought to worship, right? We, ought to, we need to worship our emotions. We need, we need to, in, in that sense, like whatever you feel needs to be expressed. Like the, the, we see this in the book of Jude in the New Testament. That's called sensuality, right? If it feels right or whatever you feel needs to be expressed or experienced, that's your truest self. And whereas maybe kind of an anti-culture or a, a subculture or, or maybe even a culture war would say, no, you suppress the religiosity. This is to re, re, suppress and deny feelings. Do, don't pay any attention to feelings. That, that will lead you down a dangerous road. And the psalm comes along with a Holy Spirit-inspired way for us to express our real human experience in a broken, fallen world in a way that magnifies the glory of God. And so every single human emotion is represented in the Psalms. In fact, the majority of them are classified as lament. And so even our sadness and despair, the, the natural feeling that we experience in a broken, fallen world marred by sin, we're invited to express in faith. And so here we are on the eighth Psalm, thinking about the language of faith and how we might think about and talk about the nature of God as we live the life of faith in a broken, fallen world. And so beginning in, I'll start with, I'll read the caption, as some of the Psalms have, a summary that would have been the first verse originally, as the first Hebrew text would have had, but gives us an idea of often who wrote it, what it's about. So beginning with the caption, to the choir master, according to the Gittith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I want to invite you to pray with me, to ask God that he would speak to us in this. God, I confess that in a psalm about your majesty, my own bumbling, my own words are not going to suffice. I pray that even now as we open your word, as we allow it to speak to us, that we would behold your majesty would you inspire awe in us 
For those of us who need to be inspired with fear, would you open our eyes to behold that it is a fearful thing to be in the hands of a holy God? For those of us who need comfort, would you open our eyes and inspire us with awe about how kind and mindful you are to even the lowliest? And I would ask you then, in your own words, would you would you simply ask God that he would speak through me and that it would make sense? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the most majestic thing you've ever seen? For just a moment, go there. I know in a, like 15 minutes you were going to daydream and go there anyway. I'm inviting you to go there now. Right? The ministry of peace of Christ upon you, right? What's the most majestic thing you've ever seen? The most majestic thing you've ever encountered? From the depths of your own imagination and experience, what's the most majestic thing you can think of? The bookends of this psalm, the repetition of that phrase, we would call that an inclusio, that is that what is included in this psalm from beginning to end, that repeated phrase, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, and then ending in verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, tells us what this psalm is about, the majesty of God, the majestic nature of his name. That is his character, who he is, how we come to know him. And so I even asked Google. I searched Majestic to see what Google would bring to me. Interestingly, I wanted to share it with you. The first image that it recommended was a deer. Uh, if you think about all of it, you know, Google knows my search history and everything I'm browsing, and for it to suggest this is just funny. But I thought maybe for all the deer hunters in the room, you see that and you start to shudder, right? It's a religious experience that's happening to you right now, right? You've encountered the nature of God. What's the most majestic thing you've ever encountered? My answer is this. Some years ago, I, I was in Nepal helping a missionary and we were we brought a team of people to uh, help some church planters there and uh, if the State Department asks I was actually just a tourist but while I was there we were in the city of Pokhara and Pokhara is uh, for for reference it's it's kind of the base of uh, a part of the Himalayas the mountains and and from Pokhara across the lake you can see part of the Himals that is the Himalayas literally the the snowy places, the Himalayas that, that have the top 10 highest peaks in the world are in this mountain range. And what you could see from Pokhara, now, now notice is, um, this is a beautiful sight. While I was there, I didn't see any of this. Uh, while I was there, uh, there was nothing but, you could see the, the, begin, the kind of the front range that you see there, and then it was just clouds, because the mountains that you see here are all over 24,000 feet. Now that's something. Um, and uh, you'll see, um, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I don't want to murder some of the names here. I want to respect some of my Nepali brothers and sisters and not mess that up. However, um, the tallest you'll see, it doesn't look like it, but on the far left um, is, is 26,000 feet. For reference, Mount Everest, which is in some sense over there, uh, a, a little further back, you can't see it from there, is 29,000 feet. And each of these three peaks you see are above 24,000 feet. Now here's the thing. Um, if I understand it right, like uh, most of Sioux Falls, we live at about 1,400, 1,500 square, uh, square feet. About uh, feet, maybe, 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 you're, maybe in Sioux Falls, you have 1,400 square feet in Sioux Falls. Uh, but we live at about 14 or 1,500 feet above sea level, Right? And Pokhara, this lake, is about 2,600 feet, so it's relatively low, very low. And what makes this view majestic is that at 2,600 feet, you are looking at a mountain that is 24 to 26,000 feet, 
over 20,000 feet of elevation you're staring at. Now, the way I would illustrate is, as we were seeing this, like it's all just clouds. You can't see it. A few months of the year, there are, you get a peak of it. We got a peak at the crack of dawn. You could see Annapurna, the, the spiky one, Annapurna 2. Um, she's not even the tallest of the mountains. And, uh, and you could see it. And I remember as we were sitting there, um, and someone was like, well, look, you can see, you know, you can see, the, you can see the peak. And I, I looked out, and I was like, I don't see it. And, and I, I kid you not, this is, it was like I was, this, this picture was done with a really great lens uh, to where you can see this. I didn't take this picture. Um, and so, like, I was looking and going, like, oh, I don't, I don't see it. And, and, uh, and my missionary friend just says, no, no, look higher. And from where we were sitting, it was like, oh, it's, oh. <laughs> and then in a few moments, the clouds went back over it because at that height that's 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 what happened there's clouds at that height it's called the dead zone the kill zone human beings cannot live there there is not enough oxygen and if you were to climb any one of those or even like Everest you would have to commit one two depending on your health one two three or four months of your life because you can't like it takes such small steps to get to that height to cover that distance your body can't handle it that's majestic And there was something that overwhelmed me, as I imagine you have experienced when you've seen great majesty. You feel very small. You feel very small, and yet something happens that the psalmist points out to us. We actually experience the glory of God, the peace and comfort of God in our smallness. We encounter something about the nature of God, the majesty of God, isn't just that he is large, but there is a peace that comes when we behold him. The topic of this particular psalm even includes what I believe is one of the greatest majesties, beginning in verse 5, that he speaks of the heavenly beings. But before that, he speaks of the creation, all that God has made. You think of this as some commentarians have called this like the, the psalm of the stargazers in verse 3. When they look at the heavens, and, and in this mind, they would have thought of the, the way they describe heavens is like the, the solar systems, what you and I know as galaxies. And, and so some of you have seen this before. This is what's known as the Hubble Deep Field. In the last 20 years, the, the Hubble telescope was essentially pointed at a big void above Ursa Major. That is the Big Dipper. And it was pointed at a void, and it rotated in such a way that, that they began to look at this kind of spot where it looked like there was nothing. It represents, and I'm going to, again, just, I'm going to get the numbers close, so I'm going to round here, but it's, this represents one twenty-four millionth of the night sky. And in this deep field, the Hubble deep field, and I encourage you, man, deep dive into the internet on this one. You'll love it. Even the ultra deep field. There are over 10,000 galaxies. In this, this, this photo, you are seeing over 10,000 galaxies, thousands and thousands of light years away. The Hubble telescope was pointed at what seemed like nothing, and even pointing at nothing, we saw the depths of what the psalmist speaks of here. The 10,000 galaxies, did you hear it in verse 3? When I look at your heavens, the, the universe, the galaxies, all of these things put together, the, I find, notice what he says, it's the work of your fingers. Look, look at this. Have, have you ever seen finger painting? Has a child ever handed you a finger, pant, p- finger painting? When the Lord finger paints, thousands, millions of galaxies come into being. That's how vast and majestic God is. What's the most majestic thing you've ever seen? Because the psalmist invites us to consider that the most, in fact, majestic thing that we could think of might not be the most majestic thing about God. So let's walk through this together. The the framework is the majesty of God. A song of praise. It's even classified often as a wisdom song because the way that we praise and the way that we're invited to to view the universe and all things is actually to to gain wisdom, to think about the nature and character of God. And, And then the nature and character of human beings and creation is in itself a path toward wisdom. To see yourself rightly before God is wise. 
And so maybe if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer, then I want to invite you into eavesdropping on what the psalmist here says is the language of faith, to contemplate the wisdom of the grandness of God and the smallness of humanity. And if you're in this room and maybe you wouldn't even believe those things are true, that God has created all things. And here, I just want to invite you while you're here with us to consider how it makes you feel to think about how small you are right? when you stare at one twenty-four millionth of the night sky and the 10,000 galaxies that are in just one fraction of what we might even be able to see with the most advanced technology we have at our fingertips. A song of praise, it says it's a for the choir master. That is, this is something of a hymn, right? This is something that the people of faith would recite. We would remind one another of this. And so again, if you're in this room and, and maybe you haven't heard about how majestic God is and, how, and the, the majesty of God displayed here in this psalm, then I want to invite you to consider it for the first time. But maybe if you've known this and believed this, then, then the psalmist here is inviting you to be reminded of this because we're so prone to forget. We're so prone to miscalculate our own significance and size. And, and it's a good and healthy regular practice to contemplate the majesty of God and, and therefore our sense of self. So it says, according to the Giddith, and others, like many of the words, we've done this before, we're not really sure what it means. It's a, it's a type of psalm uh, in many ways. It's like, if you want to know what a Giddith is, well, you have one. It's called Psalm 8. Uh, but some of the best estimations is it could be just kind of the, the genre or style or speed of the psalm, but this word also is used elsewhere to, to refer to the wine press. And so in that sense, it could be like a a harvest festival song, a song of celebration that you would, that you would commemorate God's bounty and blessing. And, and it's a psalm then attributed to David. Now, there isn't anything inherently Davidic about this. He doesn't speak to the nature of being a king or the royal throne. But, but this is, as we see for the many other psalms, this is kind of like from the man who was after God's own heart. So, O Lord, our Lord, that those first few uh, letters, you see that in the word Lord, they're all four capitalized in some of your translations. We, we know this as the name of God, the ineffable, that it's unspeakable. And that name is Yahweh, the, the name that, that as Moses was sent to, to be the deliverer of God's people who were enslaved in Egypt. He said, who's sending me? Who, who's ready? Like, by what authority am I even doing this? And, and the Lord says, tell them Yahweh, the, the I am that I am, the, the I am God sent you. Namely, you tell them the God that is actually sent you. Not the gods that are not. That You tell them there is a God and that is the God who sent me. And so the second phrase, you see that our Lord, that, that word Adonai or our, our, our sovereign. So literally, the God that is, the God, the God I am, the one that is for us in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that, that God who delivers his people is our Lord. And his name, right? His very name, that is his being and nature, that he is what he is, is majestic in all the earth. So, the majesty of God, the, namely the, the glory, the, the magnificence even, the impressive beauty, the, the grand dignity of God. That, that word is found in Psalm 93 and, and it's translated in the word might, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high, in case you've forgotten, the psalmist says, is mighty. It's that same word for majesty, that grandeur, that magnificence. That's the nature of God. That's what God is like. God is, and, and I mean this in, in a way that hopefully reorients you to using this word uh, more correctly in your common vernacular, God is awesome. In that sense, God is the only thing that is awesome. In light of God, there's nothing else that's really... They're great things. They're beautiful things. But in light of God, God alone is awesome. So we see here, God has set His glory above even the most glorious thing that you can imagine. So think of it this way. What's the most majestic thing you've ever seen? The psalmist says that the majesty of God is that he delights to be glorified by turning the tables of human expectations, using the lowly to display 
his power and care. You heard what Psalm 93 said. God is mightier and more majestic than the most amazing and awesome thing you can imagine. And yet, what what is it that the psalmist says is the vehicle or means by which we encounter God's majesty? Did you catch it? Out of the mouth of babies and infants, and then man that is easy to kill. He confounds our expectations. And the majesty of God, we're invited for the the central focus of this particular passage, is not actually what you think. Remember, like the the Hubble deep field, that's God's finger paint, right? That's God warming up. That's God just like doodling. The crowning achievement of creation, Genesis 1 and 2 tells us, is that God would lean down, he would condescend and lower himself to, as the psalmist says here, be mindful. He would actually care, in verse 4, about the lowly things that at a good run live for 80 years. The majesty of God is in fact, and in fact the most majestic thing that we can imagine, we find here are are small things that God actually delights to reveal himself through weak things, insignificant things. So in verse 2, it takes a turn, right? You're you're invited to contemplate, right? Like Like You're invited to contemplate mountains, majesty, deer, if that's for you, right? right? The deep field of the Hubble telescope. You're invited to consider the majestic nature of God. And, and then he says, now think about the mouths of babies and infants. We'll do it. The psalmist invited you to do that. But just think for a minute about the mouth or the, like the, the mouths of babies or infants. Babes. Little Babies. Even then, what, what is the mouth of a baby good for? What does it do? What, what does it accomplish in the world? And now we're introduced to the beautiful poetry of the Psalms, aren't we? The psalm, or the psalmist, answers that questions like this, right? Like if you ask, like what, what does a, the mouth of a baby even do? What does it even accomplish? And the psalmist says, it destroys the enemies of God. Just think about it. Again, go back, go back to the picture. What do, you, what do you picture when you think of the mouths of babies, right? The things that come in them and things that go out of them, right? What good is it? What, what power and strength might this have? What contribution does this make to society? And, and the psalmist says, it destroys. It is the means by which God vanquishes his enemies. The literal, literally that word to still or to silence. The accuser, the Satan, right? The, the Satan, the accuser is silenced by the power of God with the mouths of babies. That's what the psalmist says is a poetic majesty. This is the beauty of God on display. That God, in His glory, will show Himself in some profound and poetic way through the mouths of babies. That's it. That's one of those you're meant to contemplate. Like I, 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 there's no way I can even like communicate that in a way that, that gets at it until you behold it yourself. In light of that, verse 3, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers. Did you hear? Like the contrast. It's like there's a contrast now between babies, right? Like even then, there's, there's, I know even in this room, as you will hear a baby or even as you as a parent feel the need to like, maybe you need to go leave the room to go comfort your baby in the lobby. Praise God. Do that. Make, make your way to the lobby to, to you know, comfort your baby. But don't do that without first contemplating that God will use those cries, those things going in and out of the mouth of babies to silence the accusations of the enemy. That's the majesty of God. And compared to that, 
Then, in verse 3, we contemplate the, the nature of the galaxies, right? The nature of the universes. Now, again, the original writers and readers of this didn't have the Hubble Space Telescope. Now, I point that out for two reasons. One, to show that, but they still got it. Even one commentarian put it this way. Even, even they understood that, like, objects seen from afar, right, get larger as you draw nearer. And even they would have been able to look at this and realize, like, even the heavens, the stars, the moon are something that, that even though they seem small, they are so far out of reach, they're, they're, it's, in, it's impossible to get there such that even then they know, like, this, they must be big. Now, here's the fun part. Even the Hubble Space Telescope is trying to figure out exactly how big the heavens are. And our way of saying we don't know is we have a little symbol that means infinity. It's infinite, which is a way of saying we're not sure. And yet all of that, verse 3 tells us, is finger paint. The moon and the stars, you set them in place. Do you hear that language? Not, not with his brawn, right? Now, elsewhere, we'll hear, we'll hear reference to the strength and might of God. We've seen that over the last couple of weeks as his right arm, right? His, his judgment and his vindication for his people is, is, is pictured as his mighty right arm. I'm, I'm doing this. You have to imagine that it's more mighty than it is. Just <laughs> use your imagination, right? Like I'm trying to... Uh, all right. But his mighty right arm. And yet what we find here is the vastness and infiniteness of the universe is something that he did with his fingers. That's how big and grand God is. And here's the turn, right? The contrast between the enemies, the accusers of God, and little babies. And then here's the second contrast. Did you hear it? The heavens, the work of his fingers, and then the significance of human beings. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man, literally the human one, that you would care for him. All right, let me bring that back up. Remember, this is 10,000 galaxies. 10,000, at least. We don't even know. There's at least 10,000 galaxies in this frame. That would seem like it's a lot of work. That would seem like it would take a lot of energy to be God and sovereign over 10,000 galaxies. It's just from where I'm sitting, that's what it seems like, right? And yet, in light of all that it might take to hold every single atom, every single electron and quark that exists, or Higgs boson, I don't know how nerdy you are, every single one of those being held by the hand of God, and in the midst of all of that, God has his sights set on you and on me. And it, it's a question, verse 4, why would he do that? What? Why would he do such a thing? What must be true about God? That in light of the infinite nature of the universe, galaxies that we can't even measure, we don't even know how old they are, we can't even figure out how long ago God made them, we don't even know, we can't quantify it. What must God be like that in, that in the midst of all of that, He cares about the days that are numbered on this earth that you will be breathing and your heart will be beating? What must that God be like? Why would He care? And the answer in both of those is that there is evidently a glory and majesty that God has passed on to people that is unbelievable. It's impressive, more impressive even than we can imagine. So think of the first picture, the babies, right? The majesty of God is that he lowers himself to bring triumph over his enemies through and to the weakest of the weak. Look, your baby is adorable. Praise God for that. Lots of potential. But weak and needy, not a significant contributor, and yet, think about that. That's the means by which God wants to introduce himself to the world. 
And through that means, and even to that means, through weakness to weakness, through weak people to weak people, he is mindful of them. Right? Like, just think in light of those majestic things. I mean, if you were going to make an investment, you should invest in a mountain, right? If you could get your hands on a galaxy, you should probably invest in one of those. I bet, I bet that would be a good long-term investment. But on a good day, a human being might be an investment for what? 80? 100 and something years? You should invest in something that will last a little longer. And the psalmist elsewhere comes along and says that the human beings around us, we're like grass. And yet, he has bestowed upon them a crown of glory and honor that is the highest among the created order. So here's the next way that God's majesty is displayed in and through weakness. God has entrusted the care of the world to people. Now that's profound. God is actually entrusted. He has handed over the care of the world to flawed, frail human beings. That's amazing because remember, the world will outlive you, right? The world, you will, you will die and be buried in six feet under like some of the world, right? And, and yet God has, in a majestic sense, given us the words here in verse 6, our dominion over that creation. Now the implications for this are far-reaching. And I'll give you just a couple. He said you've put all things under his feet, the works of his hands, and then he lists so that you'll know sheep and oxen. So one of the first, like the birds of the heavens, fish, right? So in that sense, we are stewards like Adam and Eve in the garden over God's creation. And yet there's order to it. There's a sense in which you have to take that seriously. That stewardship, in that sense, is something we will give an account for. The first observation, notice, that stewardship is over things, creatures like sheep and oxen and birds, and not people. Just hang on for a moment. This is a pretty important side note here. The dominion that he has given to you and me is not over people. God alone gets that dominion. And so when we dehumanize people, we saw this last week by means of false accusation or slander, when we dehumanize them to put them in the category of things, or sheep, oxen, beasts, birds, fish, right? When you dehumanize them, you've done something that God doesn't give us the right to do. We are, in that sense, meant to be caretakers over our neighbors. We're meant to love and cherish the image of God that's visible in humanity. So that, That's the first quick observation. If you, if you read, oh, I have dominion, and you can think of people you want to tell what to do, you're like, you missed it. That's not it, okay? God, God put you, like, right? Remember, heavenly beings who get to, like, influence human beings, God alone, right? And you, right under there, not you, okay? That's not your pay grade. But one of the second things you see is that that means that stewardship rightly reflects the character of God. If we bear his image in the way that we, in this sense, garden the world, we cultivate. This is so beautiful. It, it images the nature of God and his creativity. I love this. Even what we think of as modern science is based on this premise that, that, that God has made the world and it actually has an order that we can observe. Right? Think of Newtonian physics, that Isaac Newton could come along and say, like, hey, if you do this to an object in motion, this is what's going to happen, right? And it will always happen. You can't stop it every single time, right? Think of Galileo, who came along and said, actually, if you look closely, there's an order, and it's not what you think. Like, you know, the solar system isn't rotating around the earth, and this, this got him in a lot of trouble. And he said, like, even a, he he you know, a heavier thing and a lighter thing fall at the same, at the same rate. Why? Because there are constants. So the beauty, think of the beauty that is even cultivated through science, our understanding. Like, we're, like it's weird. We're under a building that, at least for now, by God's grace, is not falling down. It's being held up because there are laws. There is order that God has made, and, and we are stewards over those constants. But just notice our stewardship, again, back to the first thing, is meant to provide for the flourishing of human beings, not for the subjugation of them. We're currently living in a time where this is a, a lesson of humility that I think we need to make sure we learn. I've mentioned this before, but think of the 20th century as the most advanced, most advanced history in the history... Or, <laughs> 
It's the most advanced period in human history. We have, we have discovered more things. We have created more things. We have made more things. We figured out how to harness the power of the atom. But what did we do with it? The 20th century is also the bloodiest century in human history. So notice what he's saying. For all our advances, for all the stewardship that God has given to us, we are prone to use those things and think we are God. And this is, I shared this with you a year and a half ago, but I think this is the one lesson that I think everyone's missing. And I think Connection Church is getting it. Um, man, this last year and a half is, is a lot of things. A lot of things has been exposed. But the one thing that I, I hope you get out of it is the truth of this. We are easy to kill. Like, we are so easy to kill. We are so frail. Right? And, and, we, and we think, man, we've really, we've conquered nature. And, and it's like, yeah, until it gets really cold in Texas. Right? And it's, I mean, and that's, that's not even a joke. Like, we're like, oh, and then, and then what? Then we have to blame someone. Like, wow, this is crazy. And, and the lesson should be like, yeah, yeah, you remember, easy to kill. We're so strong until a hurricane, until an earthquake. Have you heard the loudest example of this? We think we're awesome until we encounter a microscopic virus. And look, I don't know what's going to happen on the other side of this, but the one thing the psalmist wants us to learn is that we are frail. We are easy. It is e we die very easily. And even when we think we've advanced, that advancement, like think about it. Think about how multicultural and how how globalized everything is, and we're all so interconnected, and that's awesome until all those connections are full of a virus, right? Like we've built this world for transmission, for transmission of ideas, for people. You can get on a plane and get anywhere in 24 hours, right? We have built the world for transmission, and that seems awesome until a virus that's microscopic is transmitted as well. And we're meant to see that and consider our frailty and marvel at the majesty of God that he would care about us. <laughs> what are these frail, flawed, sinful things that you would care for them? Right? We, we, we take our dominion and we, just, we harm each other with it. And yet God in his mercy has still blessed us with it. And verse 9 closes, Then our Lord, our Lord, how majestic. Right? That's how majestic God is. Majesty, the majesty of God that comes through the words of babies defeating eternal enemies, the majesty of the mindfulness of God for lowly creatures that reign in a way that mirrors the image of God. So I want to give you a couple of maybe like observations that I think this, this kind of invites us to consider. First, a sense of our smallness gives us rest and comfort. Now, this isn't new for many of you. I've said this before because this is also picked up in other psalms. But the analogy is simply this. Where do you tend to like to go on vacations? Where do you tend to like to get away? And it's really interesting that human beings, like we love to go vacation next to big, majestic things in nature. We like to go by mountains. We like to go by oceans, right? Like we, the bigger, the more grand and beautiful it is, the more that it, it inspires awe in us. In that sense, we feel very small. The more rested we find ourselves being. And so God has actually granted us this gift that we can find comfort and rest in our smallness. When we, when we look, like when we sit next to the mountain, maybe it's waterfalls for you. Again, maybe it's the buck, right? Maybe it's the deer. Like, right, what, you know, again, I can, you have, you've been given dominion over that, you know, steward it wisely, get your license, tag the deer, that all, all that stuff, right? Whatever that is that in, it inspires awe in you, it, in some sense, you feel so alive. You're like, this is what it's meant to be, right? Like, 
Some of you, it's camping, right? And even the spectrum of camping. Like, you know, I, you know what you're talking about, right? You know, that's, for most of us, that's not really camping, right? But, but even just a little, like we just kind of dip our toe into the wilderness, like with an RV, right? But, but even that makes us, like, we, it's like we're connecting to something, right? We're like, oh, I feel so alive. For me, when I was in middle school and high school, and you know this, when you're in middle school and high school, you think that the end of the world is always at hand. And, and uh, I lived in a small town, and so I, I, this is just a practice that I started. I would climb up to the top. It was a small town. So I would climb up to the top of a grain elevator and, and just kind of like stare off into the flatness of the place I lived, right? Occasionally, we'd drop a pumpkin off of it, which is also majestic. <laughs> but there's something about the height and perspective that, it was, it, was, it was something, again, for my like, crazy middle school and high school years was soothing for me. I felt like the Lord used that. Now, again, I don't endorse that. That was trespassing and unsafe. Do not condone that kind of activity. But that's what heights are, right? They're a sense that you behold something larger. Your perspective is even grander, and yet your frailty, like you could fall off of it and it's over. And yet there, I think you would admit there's some comfort in it. Unless. Unless we see that large thing as an opponent of ours. The minute we want to be God, and we want to be bigger than we are, then the largeness of life, the largeness of our sorrows and burdens and human frailty are overwhelming, aren't they? But we're invited in this psalm to experience the kind of calm and peace and rest that you experience, you know, by a, by a waterfall or a mountain or a beach in some infinite measure as we consider ourselves next to the majesty of God. And that majesty is not what we expect. It's that he delights to bend down. Think He likes to stoop down into the lowliness, into the meekness of the mouth of a baby, into the frailty of the human experience. Babies are weak and dependent. They're not grand or mighty. They're quite the opposite. And yet, there is comfort here, isn't there? Like There's a comfort that God will be defeating His enemies with the utterances of babies. I mean, just think, babies can't even say words! Just whatever they say. Well, so what's the point? God is doing something that's majestic. And in light of that majesty, you and I are invited to experience rest. Obviously, the utterances of a baby have no might. Yet, think about it, that utterance has the power. Think, just hear, hear the good news in this. That utterance of a baby has the power to bend the will of the parent. A loving parent delights to respond to the cries of that baby. Do you behold the majesty of our God that actually delights in our meek and small cries, delights to hear them, and even the God of the universe is happy to bend toward us? And that, evidently, is some picture of the death of our opponents. The poetic and majestic power of God to give divine strength to the voice of an infant. That's grace. Here's secondly. The honor and glory bestowed upon humans is majestic. And lastly, the majesty of God bends down to the lowly. Those things are important to think of at the same time. There is a beauty and honor bestowed upon humans. Now, this is profound for us because humans are glory hogs. Our ego has an insatiable appetite for glory. We cannot be satisfied. I mean, even practically, we are insatiable beings. Have you noticed this? You're going to eat lunch in a little bit, right? And you would think that'd be enough until dinner. And then you would think that would be enough until tomorrow, and you'll have breakfast, 
And that won't be enough, you get it? And you'll do that multiple times a day for the rest of your earthly life. You are quite literally insatiable. You, you, you cannot stop needing. And so, we often think that being a glory hog, the insatiability of our ego, is in that sense bad. That craving, that constant longing that you and I have for more is not in itself sinful. Sin is simply when we try to satisfy that insatiable longing apart from God. Ecclesiastes 3 says it this way, that God has made... Hear the nature of of this again. You're going to hear this theme throughout the Bible, and Psalm 8 is picking it up, and it's meant to be a hymn we recite, but Ecclesiastes, the wisdom of Solomon here, that God has made everything beautiful in its time, right? This is right around the passage where the, where the, where this, you know, everything turn, turn, a season for the, right? Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Just think about, again, the poetic mystery and majesty of that. It's like saying, it's like saying you put the ocean into a bottle Right? It's like that it doesn't fit. How do, you, how do you do that? Exactly. That's majestic. Yet so that he cannot find out, literally apprehend or comprehend what God has done from the beginning to the end. That insatiability that you and I have, the longing for more, that feeling that you get when you get what you want and it's not enough and you want the newer, better thing. That feeling that you get when, you, when you're finally not alone but you're still lonely. That feeling that you get when you get the relationship, the achievement, the status that you want, and you still want more. The feeling you get, right, when you're you're a billionaire in the world and you still want to build a rocket ship to go to space. Have you seen that lately? Right? You'd you'd think at at that point when you've achieved that kind of status, you'd be like, okay, we're done. I can hang out now. Did you see it? We're insatiable. Our appetite cannot be satisfied. And that is meant to be a profound testimony, according to the psalmist, of the nature of God. That God has, in fact, created you and created me to only be satisfied by Him. And sin is not that we long for those things. Right now, some of you, you think something's broken in you because you're so hard to satisfy, right? That's not, that's sin. You are rightly seeing the world. Sin is when you think you could be satisfied in it rather than satisfied by the, by the one who did it with his fingers. We crave majesty. We crave it from celebrities, from heroes, from superheroes. We crave it from ourselves. And yet we find here joy and contentment is to find satisfaction in him alone. He is the fount of every blessing. And our eternal hunger hunger is satisfied by his, according to this psalm, eternal majesty. The majesty that he would stoop down and care for the lowly. He delights to bend down. And that, as we behold that majesty, gives us rest. The psalmist sees these things and isn't just afraid, he is astonished. The majesty of God is unique. It's not human majesty. It's not human might. It's the majesty that comes in the words of babies that defeat God's enemies. It's the majesty that comes from frail human beings endowed with eternal purpose. And what's the point? What's the point in comparing the universe to God's finger paint? What's the point of comparing the enemies with babies? What's the point of comparing the mountains and the angels with human beings? The majesty of God's grace, that he delights to close the gap. In that sense, human beings are divine instruments. You can remember this with a joke. Some of my pastor friends, we talk about this. One time we were all hanging around and somebody was praying and he asked, you know, Lord, would you make us tools in your hands for your glory? And then we just started walking around going like, man, you are a tool. Mm. Selah, right? In Jesus' name, you are a bunch of tools. And you can look at me and be like, what a tool. By God's grace, we're instruments. Why would he use us? That's grace. 
Even now, why would he use the, the ramblings of a person on a stage? Side note, there's somebody rambling on the stage of every Christian community around the world right now, including those rambling in front of a group of people in Afghanistan at risk of their very lives. And God delights to use that. The small things that you and I do, God delights to demonstrate His power in them. And that is, in fact, where we find rest and comfort, that the God of the universe cares about us. Here's one of the last observations I'll make. When we behold the majesty of God, we're freed from the need to be majestic ourselves. Hear the phrase of verse 4 there. That's not a person who thinks they're quite majestic, right? <laughs> who am I? Why would, you, why, would you, why would you look at me? But notice, this isn't rare. This isn't even uncommon in the story of the Bible. Abraham was a nobody, pagan, idol worshiper that God chose to fulfill a promise that would bless the world through him. God used Jacob, a, a scheming, awful, wicked, lying person to demonstrate his electing love. God used a band marching around the gates and walls of Jericho to demonstrate that this is the kind of thing that God does. God uses these things. God delights to come to our level. Let me wrap us up with this thought from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 18, I commend this to your study even this week. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Do you hear that? The splendor, the might, the majesty of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he turns it to you and to me. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, right? Read Tool. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and even despised in the world. Even things that are not. That'll blow your mind, right? How is it a thing if it's not? Exactly. The things that are not even things, God uses those things that are not even things to bring to nothing things that are in order that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are now in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, let that one boast in the Lord. God delights to come to our level. God delights to stoop. It's the story of the Bible. God delights to use a band around Jericho. Here's what I'll share with you. I believe God delights to use Connection Church in the same way. A bunch of gospel nobodies that no one will even remember a couple of hundred years from now. And it seems like nothing. It seems insignificant. And yet that's the thing. That's the means of God's plan. That's the absurdity and majesty of a baby thwarting Satan. The words of a baby thwarting Satan. That's the majesty of, 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 of a frail and flawed human being having eternal significance 
Jesus is the majesty that you can touch and feel. You think you have to travel to see majesty. You think you have to drive a long distance to see majesty. You think you have to like right, buy a plane ticket to get to majesty. No, all you have to do is look at God's mindfulness towards sinners. And in that majesty, you find deep, deep rest. We experience awe there. Out of even the utterance of babes, Jesus becomes living and breathing majesty, stooped down low, on our behalf. Think of it this way. The poetic victory of God over his enemies will be a lot like a baby crying for sustenance from its parent, a comfort to the burdened, adoption for the orphan. And how will it come to pass? God stoops himself to their level. Jesus is that majestic Babe, he quotes this out of Matthew chapter 21 when, when he rides in on a donkey, right? A kind of a weird thing for a king to be on. You'd think something more majestic, wouldn't you? And you would be wrong. And the Pharisees and scribes cried out, like, why are these children crying Hosanna? And then they said, you know, in, in, the, only, in the way that only Jesus can get away with, haven't you read Psalm 8, right? Haven't you read that out of the mouth of babes would come the stilling of the enemy? But it's even more than that. Jesus is that for us. He is the one who has stooped. He is God in the flesh for us so that we can see and interact with him. Think of it this way. When baby Jesus uttered his first cry, Herod and all the kings of the world shuddered in fear. When the God of the universe entered into humanity in baby Jesus, and whimpered for his mother. The rulers and principalities of darkness began to shake. When God stooped beneath the angels to come as the Son of Man, demons shuddered and begged for mercy. This is God's poetic majesty at best. Like an infant crying out for milk, its mother will come to him in the same way that God will crush the enemies of his people. And when baby Jesus cried, the very enemies of God began to tremble. And when a man, a son of man, the son of man, cold and dead, resurrected from the grave, the greatest majesty that had ever existed was on display for all to see. That God delights to lower himself to you and to me. Friend, you don't need a space telescope you don't have to drive to a mountain or an ocean. We can behold the glory of God that he would lower himself and welcome sinners like you and like me. God stoops down into the flesh. In just a moment, we're going to behold that mystery. We're going to be invited to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We're going to be invited to behold something profound, a majesty that seems upside down that God would stoop down to take on flesh. He would take even the lowest of low to be rejected and despised, to be broken and have his blood poured out. And we get to, like a crying baby, take that into our bodies as we take it into our souls by faith. 1 Corinthians 11 is an encouragement to experience this mystery from the Apostle Paul. He says he received from the Lord what he delivered unto them, namely the good news of Christ's broken body and shed blood. And when he gave thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this now in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is a cup of the new covenant in my blood. Now do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, right? His stooping, his bending down until he returns. So in a moment, we're going to pray and prepare, and verse 27 says we'll do it this way. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy man is in fact guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And so let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much that you have condescended and while that's something that 
we would never want a human to do to us unless it's a teacher teaching a student. It is, in fact, the means by which you have come to be with us and for us in Christ. Thank you that you have taken on the role of human. You have taken on the flesh, the Son of Man. But not just that, you've taken on the role of a servant, a servant who is obedient even to the point of death, death on the cross. And because of that obedience, you have now exalted him to be the name above every name. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is that name in all the earth. God, as we begin to respond in faith, I pray that you would open our eyes to see and behold that you have come to be with us and for us. You have lowered yourself. You delight to use unlikely means. You delight in using things like a cross and an empty grave to give us new life. You delight to empower the weak. You delight to display your power in our frailty. Allow us to receive this good news that you have come to be united with us in Christ who became weak on our behalf, who took on sin, who took on our guilt and took on our shame. Might we now be free from those things as we look to Jesus. Amen.